hello, and thank you for joining us on another episode of Why Theory. As always, I am your host, Ryan Hinkley, joined, as always, by co-host Todd McGowan. Todd, how you doing, buddy? I'm doing great, Ryan. How are you today? I am doing well, and I am in the mood to talk about absolute knowing and also to talk about legacy, I think, which is an interesting word. Uh, we're at the end. Uh, we're of, at the end. We we when did we start this? Like three years ago or something? Uh, it might have been longer. Um, so we we're also coming up on uh, the uh, the anniversary of this podcast, which I think I have it as the nineteenth of this month. Oh, uh, okay. Yeah. So um, so that what anniversary that fourth year anniversary five. Five. Wow. Yeah, we started in twenty started in twenty seventeen. I'm pretty sure, um, and. Uh, I could easily check, but I'm about off the top of my head. I think, I think it was five years ago and I think it was in, I, I want to say it was in the first year, not calendar year, but just like the, from, from September, 2017 to September, 2018. I think in that realm was when we did the first episode. So it's been almost as a, uh, and we just did it. Um, I remember like not thinking we would go through the rest of the book as I oh, mentioned right. in the previous. Right. Yeah. Because right. what we did in that episode this is what I said in the last one, what we did in that episode was talk about basically how to read Hegel, not necessarily what he talks about in the preface itself. Um, and we are now at the, we're now at the end. And uh, there's a lot of interesting things to talk about here. There's uh, so we're going to take kind of like a wider look of this. We do have some translation things we want to get into with this uh, chapter specifically, and we're going to get into some nitty gritty here. But there's not, um, there's not a ton of new in this chapter. Right. But there's and a it's lot short. of it is it's very, very short. short. Yeah, he's nailing down what he said uh, so far, and so we will go through that. But it, it, we want to take a, kind of like a broader view since we're at the end. And uh, to 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 look at like the the reception, I, uh, so to speak, and and and, and legacy right. basically of this. And one of the things, just to just to cut right to it, one of the things that's very important. Stern even mentions this in his um, uh, guidebook uh, about uh, about the phenomenology that there is a lot of uh, has been a lot of conversation um, more recently about the book that we just that, that it's naive. And that you just can't take the you cannot take uh, seriously the conclusions that uh, Hegel lays out, nor the method he lays out for how thought uh, becomes uh, well. How oh, just ended that that sentence? How thought becomes uh, because of the uh, the precepts that he lived with. And that we've just been so many historical events and changes in the world that it, this is a uh, this is a relic and can only really be understood in its historical time and place, um, and that there's there's I don't know little little to appreciate or use from this just because of uh, not necessarily how old it is but it's just it's locked into a way of thinking that we just don't have anymore. And that it was part of the legacy that Stern, he does some pushback that I'm going to get to uh, nicely a little bit later, but he does present this. So I just want to throw this to you, Todd. How big is this reading? How big is it? Would you say this is a, a huge part of the, uh, the legacy of, uh, of, of this book? Yeah. I mean, when I think for the first 150 years after its publication, this was the thing. And especially in the mid 20th, mid to late 20th century, because, the idea was, and this was mainly propagated, not mainly, I mean, he was a, he just was a major part of it. It was propagated by Theodore Adorno and this mm. notion that certain events 
made Hegel's too sanguine view of history unpalatable today. And so mm-hmm. I think, namely the Holocaust, I think is foremost on Adorno's mind, but also the Gulag, the both world wars, the whole. Mm-hmm. And, and, and so after that, it became, the idea was this notion of reason progressing in history. And I think that, especially that term applied to Hegel. And, mm-hmm. and it was almost universally thought that Hegel was offering a progressivist version of history. I do not think that's true, mm. but that was the, the, the image of Hegel at the, for a long time. And it's basically only with, so someone wrote to me and said, uh, I think sometimes you give Slavoj credit for innovations of Jillian Rose who wrote mm. this great book in the 1980s, I think 83, called Hegel Contra Sociology. And and that's probably fair and that's probably true, but this is a case where I don't think that's true. I think that Rose still has a very forward, progressivist reading of Hegel, and she thinks he's just laying out that when he says the the actual is rational, mm-hmm. what he's really saying is that actual the our reality hasn't caught up with what's rational and so we need to make it catch up so there's still you can see in that there's still a kind of a marxist tint to the, the and and a progressivist tint to what he's saying but if you read hegel as a noctreglic thinker as a, a, mm. a thinker of retroactivity mm-hmm then the narrative is only progressive insofar as it's written from the perspective of the present toward the past, right? Mm -hmm. So it's not, so it's progressive only as the illusion of the present, not as this is a genuine progress that's taking place. So I think it wasn't really until 89 or, you know, early 991 where he wrote for them, for they know not what they do. I'm talking about Slavoj Zizek, Mm -hmm. that, that reading of Hegel, was finally put, you know, put into question. So, and then now I think a lot of people, Rebecca Comey, Catherine Malibu, me, other, you know, other people mm-hmm. have put that into question. So I, I think that that's, um, you know, that seems like to me a, a, an important, that, that idea that, that, that absolute knowing was the crowning point of historical progress Right. That was the dominant way of thinking about this chapter up until Zizek's intervention in the late 80s, early 90s. It's interesting to, um, especially, like, it, it is interesting that the legacy was one of, uh, of, of progressivism because he, I, I think, quite insistent in even this little chapter about uh, the role of negativity and not just the role of negativity, but, but really it's... Um, it's dominant and like, like, like uh, it, it's, it has a role that should be in the forefront of thinking right. about Hegel. Like he right. has this great phrase. It's on, it's on 491 of the Miller, but for anyone looking at any, uh, sec- the section is 805. And he has this, uh, I'm, I'm going to do like a little bit of a um, l- little paraphrase, but he refers to negativity as restless. It's like, it's a, it's a restless negativity. Uh, like, so this, uh, its own restless process of superseding itself or negativity. So negativity ha- ha- does not, it does not stop. Like we, right. we, we, you know, right. and, and I, and I think it's just, again, one of the things that we've like, like come up against, uh, um, 
or, or, or kind of push back against in a lot of these episodes is the the notion that that he's a synthetic thinker. He's a thinker of synthesis, and we come to this like, right. ah, but Todd isn't truth somewhere in the middle, and can't we just <laughs> can't we just get behind that? It's like no, he's like right. like like there is something I've. I phrase it this way, and I'm going to quote. I'm going to do the gross thing of quoting myself from something that's not even published. In the middle of truth is something that would tear it apart, and that is a there's a there's a a restless negativity that we need to uh, right a, a, yeah. a, approach it with. Like that that's where, what Hegel gets to here. And I find it like I don't know. I know we're, we're I know we're coming at it after the last like tw- like twenty thirty years of you know of reading. Hegel in this way, but it, it, it is something that seems like it, it's on the page. Like we're not putting it there. Like it's just, it's, it's right. absolutely there. And I, I find it, I find, I, I suppose I like, I, I would, I would flip it back that it's like, I, I think it's ideological to have read him as a progressivist, like even from the beginning. Absolutely. Absolutely. Just one interesting little note on that. Uh, Jean-Luc Nancy has a book, the sub a book on Hegel. The subtitle is "The Restlessness of the Negative." So, mm, nice. it's, there is, and it's clearly alluding to this this section from from Absolute Knowing. And I think you're right that that the the progressivist reading of him is ideological and tries to take his disruptiveness as a thinker and this emphasis on the negative and turn it into something positive right like yeah. to turn it into yeah. something that can be can can give us something to build on and something to feel good about and i think that's what this whole section really absolute knowing is really about the imp- like it's not devoid of positivity mm-hmm, mm-hmm. uh but it's all, i mean and this is what i think is great about hegel as a thinker that and this is why he's not someone like lee edelman because for someone like Lee, that it, it is the negativity itself that is the point. And I think actually Nancy is in that camp as well, because he's mm-hmm, a mm-hmm. he's related to Derrida, not by blood, but <laughs> but uh by marriage. By obviously. idea. Yeah. Right. And 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 for them it the negativity is the whole that's the whole project. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But I think in this section, Hegel's very clear that the the negativity also always has to have a positivity attached to it right like there's yes. no such thing as a pure negativity which is i think what the these these uh what would you call them these champions of the death drive or these these champions of deconstruction i think they think there can be a pure negativity, right? And 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 yeah. I think Hegel always wants to see the way in which the negative always has, there's this positive advance. And in fact, that's the basis of Derrida's critique of this section is that Derrida thinks sometimes there are losses without any positive recompense, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. and like on the one hand, you're like, of, of course that has to be true, right? Like when when someone dies for mm-hmm. them there's no po- <laughs> what's the positive outcome right. unless they you know go to heaven or something which is you know that wouldn't be hegel's position um no. mm-hmm. so so but but his point is that that with within every that 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 there's no absolute manifestation of negativity that absolute is always the, seeing the link between the negativity and and its positive expression. I think, which I think is really really important in this section. 
Yeah, I mean, he says it several times and in different ways, and we're gonna uh, we're gonna get to I think some translation thing in here uh, as well at a certain point. But it's it's like you have to um, you have to see seeing yourself as other would be one way of putting it. But you have like right. like seeing the and we've said this like several times throughout this, but like it just to sort of reca- re- recapitulate your thing, like not not seeing like I think this is really 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 important. It's not that like. Um, it's not like at the end of uh oh at the end of a at the end of a rainstorm there's a rainbow it's not it's 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 not that like it's not like right it's not that right it's right. it's that the 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 negative d- depending the negative depends and comes out of the positive and the positive uh like comes out of the negative like in like that like that relationship is uh is tight and 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 really like reconciling oneself to that is that's this process of 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 absolute knowing like the 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 example that i that i like to give when i when i teach this book is the like your your best quality is your worst quality and your worst quality is your best quality it's inseparable they're not two separate things it's not exactly some exactly. it's not sometimes it's not sometimes you're um you're you're really nice or, or and too nice and people walk all over you and that's and that's a problem so you just have to stop being that it's like no if you stop being that you wouldn't be nice in the same way it's just, right. it's, it's, it's not, it's not really, it's not really possible. So it, like, and, and there has to be sort of a, has to be a flipping, uh, in, in, involved where like, uh, it's not, it's not about if someone takes it, I guess I'll put it this way. If someone takes advantage of, of your niceness, that's about them. That's not about you. And, and I, I, I think it, like to like, just in this sort of, I don't know, not to make this like Hegel self-help kind of thing, but like if you if you close if you close you close it down you close off that that aspect of yourself you're you're no longer you're no longer that that good thing you know right like, no like it's it, absolutely true it's absolutely true and I, I i think that you know that's why the very beginning of the section is about you know this is this this has come to the, our first little translation issue right like the nice. the, yeah. the the way that that Hegel insists upon a self estrangement, right? Like mm-hmm, this, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. and the term he uses is entäußerung, like going outside of yourself. Yes. And what's interesting is that's also one of the terms that Marx uses to describe alienation or estrangement in the 1844 manuscript. So, it's it, it, what's fascinating is the only person that translates it that way is Michael Inwood in the in the new Oxford translation, right? Like both Pinkard and Miller translate it. So Pinkard for Pinkard, I think it's self relinquishing. Mm-hmm. And then I, what is the Miller? It's uh, the Miller is uh, externalization. Okay. Right. So that doesn't capture in any way <laughs> this link to Marx or this sense of estrangement or alienation. Right. And so, mm-hmm. but, but what's fascinating to me is that for Hegel, those are, those are positive terms, and I think yeah. in the in our culture and in Marx, estrangement and alienation are absolutely negative terms. But I think Hegel specifically uses a negative term in a positive way to make the point we've been you were just making, right? Like that, yeah. That it's only through this thing that feels negative. It feels it doesn't feel great to be self estranged right like it feels <laughs> right, bad right, right. it feels yeah. like i'm i'm not at home with myself i'm mm-hmm. i'm i'm outside of myself my my our tw- our twin 
boys were just went to college and they they both they I'm sure they're feeling they didn't they don't confide in me like this but <laughs> they're, they're, I'm sure they're feeling a strain you know estranged from themselves right like they're they're not in their well, own just, bed and just the, you emailed you emailed me the other day uh, we were uh, that um, uh, Dashiell had come he was visiting home. And like, like, and I mean, I, I emailed that back to you, like, like, that's a, ch- that is a change in, in your, in your relationship with your son and his relationship with you. And right. home, like, 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 like before, like before college, you would have never said that you'd have just right. said, right. you were doing, you were doing something with Dashiell, but no, yeah, he, was he said like, a couple, couple interesting things, Ryan. He said, yeah, I slept in my bed. It didn't feel like my bed anymore. So that was yeah. nice. And then yeah. in the morning, he's like, can you take me back home? And so. Mm. Both of those things were great because they're they're both expressions of this estrangement, right? And yeah. and and so you can see it feels bad to be estranged, but you can mm-hmm. I think that that college experience makes very clear I think the emancipatory power of estrangement, right? Like that mm-hmm. and and you know, I even think of this in terms of estranged labor, right? This is Marx's yeah. famous right. chapter from from the, you know, obviously no one wants to slave at work in a factory uh, six days a week for 12 hours a day, which is what Marx was describing. But mm-hmm. don't you think, like, whenever I, I often hear people complain about, oh, people are working at, I, I just went to Trader Joe's this morning. Yes. And, you know, I exchanged the most the most banal pleasantries with the, the worker there. And mm-hmm. and I think you could come out and you'd say like wow they're they're so estranged all they have are these they don't get to really talk about themselves with the but you could look at it and I think Hegel would you could look at it the other way right mm-hmm. like you could say like oh I get to have my own whatever inner life because my labor is just totally estranged so I can just do I can just interact with these customers in the most banal way I don't have any serious interaction and I can, while they're going through the line, I can think of, you know, I can think of like Kant's categorical imperative or Fichte's Anstoss or whatever I want to think of. And, you know, it, 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 and, and, I'm, and I, there's a kind of freedom in that, right? So I, I think even in the, even in things that seem like estrangement in a really bad way, I mm. think you can still, and Hegel would want to, you can still see something there's still this positive dimension to it. I'm not when, saying, obviously, I'm no, not no, trying to romanticize dehumanizing labor. I'm just saying, like, that n- not being personally invested in your labor is not necessarily a negative, it's, it's not necessarily a bad thing. Well, what you're, and what you're, I think what you're also saying is that, like, it's, like, it's through, I mean, like, like, through the dehumanizing labor like you can reach it come to some hum, humanizing insight that's right and, that's right and, that's and right like 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 uh, so i was just as you were saying that like when um in the summer between my uh, uh two years at um at uvm i worked at this uh this inn uh at uh in in vermont and i'm not uh which i will i will not name you're not going to name it. Wow. Uh, you feel right, free to name Walmart, but you won't name these like local. You know what? That's interesting. Blah, blah, blah. That's a really good yeah. point. I do. For, okay. Yeah. So it was the inn at Shelburne Farms. I'll say this, which okay. is a great, great place to go to. If you're in Vermont, you should go there. Uh, beautiful, beautiful facilities right on Lake Champlain. There's great, great places. So while I was working there, though, like I, um, so my, uh, my friend, how I got the job was my friend's uh, wife was the uh, director of the inn at the time. And they, 
uh, lived um, as uh, in, in in a very um, uh, uh, what's his name in a very Jack Torrance kind of way. They lived above. <laughs> they they lived in the inn itself um, and yeah. helped to, to help take care of it. And so I would often yeah. go to see them, and I would park in the parking lot that was right outside of the the door that went up to where they went to, to go up to see them. Okay. This sounds like very, very, okay. what does this possibly have to do with Hegel or anything? Why is this interesting? I'm I think we're going to get the secret to absolute knowing coming really soon. <laughs> I think so. we totally are. So I, so anyway, when I started working there, I would park in the same area and somebody, my manager, I forget who it was or, or the manager there at the time. It wasn't my friend's wife said, you can't park there. And I was like, what do you mean? I was like, this is the easiest way to get inside. I'm the, like to, to do the work. I was a host, which meant I would carry bags to the hotel rooms for the 1% basically like that summer. That's right. what I did. And, 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 uh, what the manager said to me was, uh, that's for the guests to park. You can't park there. And I was like, so where do I park? And it's like, you have to park down the hill and it's really, really funny. And so if anyone is going to the end of children farms, I do, <laughs> I do encourage them to take a look at this. Basically there is a kind of a parking lot for all the people that work there. And it's like behind these trees. <laughs> so you can't see it when you're at the, it doesn't obscure your view and en- enjoyment of the facilities. And it wow. is like often covered in mud and just water. And you have to literally walk up a hill to get to, to get to work. You have to walk. And, um, someone asked me before if it was, uh, was it working at Walmart that like made you like, I don't know, like a Marxist or turn leftist, the turn toward leftist politics. And it was actually working there because, because graphically you, I could, you could see. And at Walmart, it wasn't just that I hadn't gone to grad school yet or whatever, but Walmart does a really good job of like, making this kind of like this, like you have someone, you have the people that you work with, you have someone who is your like assistant manager, there's a store manager, whatever. But there is also something that like, because the people who work above you are usually dumb and they are just like, they're just doing party line stuff. You can often, I just, everyone felt this way. You often feel superior to the people that you work for. So yeah. in a, in a sense, there was this parody, but working, working there where there was this graphic thing. Where Plus with I am, your clients, right? I mean, the customer, yeah. that's the other thing, right? Like yeah. you, you're, I you're, drove you're their cars a lo- to the class level part. with the customers. Yeah. Right. Yeah. No, that's exactly right. That's, exa- that's a really, right. really nice point. Yeah. I, when I worked, when I worked in the Walmart in Halifax, like it was a, ru- it was a rural, that was a rural Walmart uh, as, as much as one could exist. And yeah, the class level, like the, the people who were buying there, like we, we may, we probably made the same money. Most of the people I talked to, but at what, at the end of Shelburne farms, I was like driving really, really nice cars to the parking lot that I couldn't park at. <laughs> and I, you know what I mean? Like thinking about that. I parked at when I was just, uh, when I wasn't working there, but was friends with the, you know, people who did. And, and anyway, right. Uh, so yeah, that's so, a great story. Yeah. 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 So that, was I mean, a, so it, yeah. what's interesting is that labor that seems most alienating mm-hmm. is actually, that is the Walmart labor is actually f- more freeing than the, than this labor at, um, at Shelburne. No. Or no, you're making the no, opposite no, the other, point. I'm okay, making good. the opposite yeah. point. Yeah. I'm making the okay, opposite point Be- yeah. because there's something flattening about the Walmart experience. There's yeah, something yeah. like, which like, is deceptive, and, which is yes. deceptive. It's deceptive. And I, and I, that, that's, gotcha. that's how I look, look back at, look back at that. Like that's, yeah, it's, um, be, there's also, cause there's also so many of you. So there, there's something like, well, we're all experiencing something really shitty together. So there, it doesn't right, seem, right. it doesn't seem right. as uh, antagonistic, but at this, but there was just such a, like, 
Um, it also made me reflect back on the Walmart. Like there was just all most of the work that I did at the end. I mean, this is true at any, anybody who works in any hotel is the most of the work that you do is to make it seem like no one has ever been there. And that's a lot right. of the work I realized I did at Walmart was to make it seem like no, sh- uh, no, no one had ever, ever shopped there. Yeah. Ever yeah, before. Yeah. And so there's yeah. just so much labor that's put into this. And anyway, um, for, I, it's just it, the reason why we spent so much time on this is the, really to get to this. So I'm going to give two sentences here for Marx. Revolution is overcoming this estrangement. And for Hegel, the revolution is in this estrangement. And there and, you go. Yeah. And, 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 and like, that's, that's absolute, that's absolute knowing is this like how the, uh, the, the, the negative and the positive exist in this, in this tension. And right. Right. Like, 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 like side by side. Um, right. Seeing your, I I would say it's something like seeing your emancipation in your estrangement. Yeah. There we go. Something like that. Yeah. 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 It's yeah, yeah it's then, not not just side by side but like in like like the there's there's the bit that's that's bled into the other I think is, right. is maybe like right. a nicely nice way of putting it. Yeah. Absolutely. It. Absolutely. Yeah. And and then and then what, the other thing that really preoccupies him here mm-hmm. is saying we already got to the central insight in the revealed religion section. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah, he but says this a couple times. But why does A couple it times, right? It kind of yeah. runs almost throughout the whole thing. And then he, but then he's like, but the we only got to the insight in terms of content, right. not in terms of form. And I think it has yeah. to directly to do with what you just said about the self estrangement, right? Because in in revealed religion, which is Christianity, which is the death of the God of the Beyond, just to recapitulate from last time, mm-hmm. uh, that 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 is the proper content, but it doesn't. There still is this problem of the Christian seeing that act outside of her, him, themselves, right? Like that, mm-hmm. there mm-hmm. isn't that sense of, of in, like it's the concept alienating itself, right? And that's, right. I think that's what he means by form mm. versus content. And, that, and I think that's what he, that's what you get to in absolute knowing that you see in the concept's own self-alienation, you see the alienation of the other. And I think that's the real, that's the real crucial idea, right? Like, I think it is this, it's, it it seems like absolute knowing is precisely this. And if you know Slavoj, you've heard this joke a million times. And so I apologize, but it's the guy that comes in believing himself. He comes into the analyst, believing himself to be a seed who everyone he runs into chicken. He's afraid the chicken's going to eat him, right? So mm-hmm. he, he goes through a couple weeks of analysis, finally becomes convinced that he is not a seed. And then he goes out, and the analyst is like, okay, you're ready to go into the world. You don't have to come back. He goes out in the world, comes back the next day, and the analyst is like, what happened? Aren't you really convinced you're, a, you're no longer a seed? And the guy's like, yeah, 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 I'm convinced, but is the chicken convinced, right? And so <laughs> right, like, right. that's the idea is that absolute knowing. So I think in a way, isn't revealed religion still have the problem of, is the chicken convinced? Yeah. Right. Right. Like, right, right. Well, is God, is, in, is God convinced that you're a follower? That's right. That's you right. Know? That's right. That's right. Because, but can you once, do enough? Can you, you do, enough? do enough? Right. And yeah. then, then, and then in, because there's still some, 
it's still a little bit out there, right? Mm-hmm. Even though mm-hmm. God of the beyond has died, it's still in an image, in a representation, Hegel's mm-hmm. term. If you, if you read the Miller translation, it's, he constantly refers to picture thinking, and the German yeah. word is Forstellung, and I think it's much better represented by the word representation. Uh, yeah. So it's still in the form of a representation rather than a concept. And mm-hmm. what absolute knowing does is bring it into the concept so that the, the alienation of yourself you recognize in what is external to you. So yeah, it's, nice it's, a, it's really this substance is subject from the preface mm-hmm. that gets totally realized here as I, I see my split out in what is external to me out in the object. Yeah, no, that's, that's really, really nice. And it's also like, this is something that I, I find, um, uh, to, you know what, Todd, I'm going to, I'm going to put, I'm going to put some sincerity on the line. Something I find inspiring, okay. something I find inspiring in this is that he had to have written the book to this point to be able to say what you just said. And right, right. And, and that's, that maybe sounds base basic or or, or stupid or like, it's really easy to be cynical in two different ways about this. One way, one way of the cynicism is to say like, well, no, he was uh, like to be really positive and say he was a genius. So he was going to like, he didn't need to have written the book to, to have said that another way. uh, The other way would be that like, would be to say like it's not even that's not even a, a new idea it's not it's not even it's not even that deep it's like uh like you know other people were saying this and then you know discredit the circumstances in which he wrote or, or right. whatever make it really historic right. um but yeah. the whole thing i mean the, the whole reason why i guess i put it this way the whole reason why the um our our, our preface episode if you listen to the other ones and you listen to that one why it stands out the way that it is and why it's really about reading Hegel is just that like he, he had to, I mean, he wrote the preface last because he had to have written the book to have been able to write the preface. And as in he, not just he had to know what was in it, but he had to move through the gears of thinking this way to come to crystalline insights and to be able to say things like uh, uh, subject is, is substance, substance is subject, like to be right. able to like, and, and that's not just like a stupid reversal, like, like, to, like to really um, earn that he had to go through it. And this is like what I find. So I'm going to come back to a couple of things. He talks a lot about how these ideas have to be one. Okay. Yeah. And that is so important for understanding about how to read Hegel is that like, you don't just, these ideas don't just, they don't just happen to you. They, you know, you don't, uh, you have to, there's a, a physical process that has to be, uh, I would almost say endured to be able to come to these insights. And it is something that it reminds me a lot of after I was in the car accident and freshly suffered the traumatic brain injury that just to think any thoughts, I was so acutely and crushingly aware of having to think, I had to relearn how to think, which is, is such a strange experience to try to relate to another yeah. person or to relay. But like, yeah. I was acutely aware that I was not thinking the way that I had thought as like a physical process. I had to think about thinking to push thoughts through. And I'm one of the things I read 
And so it, it doesn't, so it's, it's not that um, strange to me that um, Catherine Malibu would come to think about like brain plasticity and Hegel, because I think about, I mean, she writes a lot about um, uh, soldiers who suffered uh, TBI um, in uh, for, like wars, uh, ba- right. basically in, in armed combat. Um, and so it is something that, that I, that I, that I see in here that, that I recognize that like, that was an experience to relearn how to, how to think as a physical process has I think a really intimate uh, analogy here that like what he's trying to teach you is how to pu- how to push an idea through and how to push it through from it makes the most sense the ideas that make the most sense are the ones that are immediately apprehendable to me the ones that are most in front of my face the ones that I can see outside these things seem to be the most true because they're the closest to me and you have to start there and this is really important and not just go away from that to some like objective plane where the the truth is no longer that which you can feel and see but the 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 truth that is object as in outside of you has to feel as close as those initial and immediate things and that's the like almost impossible fusion that has to be done and and it's not not has to be done has to be won has to be like pushed through and 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 earned and that like it's he doesn't it'd be i also think this would be a much more explicable project if what he was doing was dispensing with immediacy forever but he's not it comes back in here that like you have to know things in the same way that you knew the immediate thing right i mean ryan that's great what you just said is incredible that's great and i think two things you're exactly right that that in absolute knowing there's a kind of return to immediacy, which mm-hmm, you're, mm-hmm. wait a minute. What, what? <laughs> but, <laughs> yeah. but right. It's as if like when you fully grasp the, all of the mediation, then you're prepared for the immediacy of an experience for the mm-hmm. first time, really. Right. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. which is an amazing insight, I think. And then the other thing, our favorite line from the preface, spirit uh-huh. wins to its truth only when it finds itself utterly torn asunder. Mm-hmm. That, As you pointed out to me, the the verb is gavinin, and it's also repeated here. Mm-hmm. Gavinin means just to win in German, and it's repeated here in the, in the absolute knowing section, right? So mm-hmm. he clearly, that's clearly on his mind as he finishes, because the preface, as you point out, is at the end of the prefaces, as he's finishing the book, this winning to its truth mm-hmm. is what he sees happening, which I think is really, really good. And I think they're like, so it's only through, I think a lot of people don't like the militant metaphors of Hegel, but I think he really <laughs> wants to, I think he... I think he likes that, that there's a kind, that thought is a struggle. Mm. It's a, like, it's a fight. Yeah. It's militant, but it's militant with oneself. I mean, that's, (laughs) that's why, you know, that's why I think the metaphor is fine because it's not, Hegel's not like you got to beat the shit out of the other philosopher. Like I, I I just kicked Fichte's ass and (laughs) no, it's like, it's this. It would be a lot easier, right? If that's all we had to do. Right. That's true. (laughs) That's so true. Uh, but it's it's a fight with oneself, right? And mm-hmm. with one's own, this this the power, as you were just pointing out, I think, the power that immediacy has over one's own psychic operations and how mm-hmm. 
how the, the winning through of truth is a difficult thing. And I think what one thing that he really adds in this final section is, the, is to clarify this relationship. I mean, I think there's a way to read the entire phenomenology as an exploration of the relationship between certitude and truth, right? So mm, yeah. certitude is on the side of subjectivity. Truth is out there in the objects. And so we always think, I have my subjective certitude, but I'm always coming short of the truth which is out there. And then in absolute knowing, those two things finally line up. And I right, think that's right. the... And what that means is that I no longer am... am my thought is no longer hampered by the idea that the truth is beyond it, just out of reach. Right. You know? And that's why <laughs> right, winning... Right, right, right. Winning is so crucial, right? Because in a way, it's always easier to lose, right? Like, it's always <laughs> yeah. easier to lose because you then you have... I, I, I talk as someone whose favorite team lost the Super Bowl last year, right? Like, <laughs> like the, lot, yeah. it's easier to lose because you have the next thing... You, you still have the next game or the next year. It's always on the horizon. Mm. Whereas if you win all the time, all you have to look forward to is to lose, right? Like, so let me give you another sports thing. So I play tennis with three different people. One person I'm evenly matched with, so it's uninteresting. One person <laughs> I almost always beat. And okay. the other person, my colleague, Andrew Barnaby, almost always beats me. The person, there's much more tension for me playing the guy that I always beat because the only thing that can happen for me is a bad thing, right? Yeah. Like, I can, whereas against Andrew, I always have this possibility out there in the future mm -hmm. of winning, right? Right. But but what's interesting for Hegel is what happens after spirit already wins, right? Like that's, so I think that's, it seems like to me, that's the crucial thing. Then you can no longer look and say, okay, I have my certitude, but truth is just this thing beyond, no, you don't get, you don't get that. Mm -hmm. And that's mm -hmm. why the Christian thing is so important, right? So the God of the beyond comes down, and so you don't get this hope for the beyond. Mm -hmm. Everything you had hoped for, you've already gotten. And then how do you live with that? Yeah, yeah. Recon yeah, reconciling that as the... Reconciling with that, right. Yeah, right. yeah. No, that's awesome. That's, and that's a really, that's a great example. The, <laughs> the, the idea that um to to come back oh so two things here um one thing that where i i like the recommending the miller translation generally because it's most affordable but it is right. especially in this section and like as you end the book you are especially let down because spirit is always capitalized and all like all these words are always capitalized like in every noun in German is capitalized. So I know like, we've said this a million times, but yeah, there is no license to ever capitalize a word in translation from the German, just because every noun in German is trans is, is capitalized. So you just, you can't just pick and choose <laughs> which ones. You, oh, that's important spirit. Yeah. I'm going to capitalize that. It's just, so it's, that's, it's, so it's, I bring this up because of the, like where you, where you ended uh, your really nice example is that like for religion, like, it, like, especially like Christian religions or, or any, any, any religion that, uh, or any of the Christian religions that believe in God in three parts and, and you, you have the Holy spirit, capital H, capital S and, 
since this comes after religion and since spirit is capitalized, it does have that, you know, majestic mythological, almost uh, kind of currency to it. Um, And that's an an unfortunate thing in the, in the Miller translation is that, that what Hegel is saying is that that transcendent, just like we said in in the last episode, that transcendent, like majestic kind of notion of spirit has to be brought down. Actually, you have to bring it down from the uppercase to the lowercase. Like you have that, 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 that has to be done to be able to see, to see the concept. And so I, I don't know. So maybe, maybe that, maybe that is something in a, in a sense that, um, that does recommend the Millers. Every time you read the, the spirit as uppercase, you have to, you make have it to low- do it. Yeah. You, you have, have to make to it lowercase yeah. and you're engaging yeah. in the process that he, that Hegel is laying out of like, you know, you like, so, so what if spirit is just another, it's just another noun now. Yeah. How, like, like, what do you, how, how are you, how are you going to read the book now? How do you, how are you going to reconcile that? Like, like it's just, now it's just another noun. So what's important about it? It's not capitalized. Easter's anymore. just another day. Right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right, right. 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 <laughs> sorry. Yeah. That was, that was sorry. No more singing by me. <laughs> Ryan gets to yeah. sing, but not. Really. <laughs> okay. I don't know. I don't know, man. I, no, I you're really, I mean, you like are a real musician. Let's not. Well, yeah, that's not, that's nice of you to, uh, not with my, I don't think with my voice. Um, uh, but, but that's, uh, that's kind, kind of you. Um, I want to go back to another thing from earlier about, um, from Stern is, uh, yeah. who nicely puts at the end of his commentary that in, in a slight rebuttal to how we began, which is like, what's the legacy of this? And, and, and I, and, Adorno, I think actually, right. Yeah, I think so. And, and I, and so this would be, so two sentences, I think I'm gonna put back to back that are really, really important, uh, to, to think through. So I want to make sure that I get all this. I am spent, I'm, I'm biding time. So in the back of my head, I can make the sentence the way that it should go back to front. So now I have it, I think. So to think that any historical epic or event would, uh, uh, discredit or make irrelevant or annul in some way, what, what Hegel is doing is to misunderstand his entire project here. And so that's, that's me. That's not Stern. What Stern says at the end of his commentary that I think is really great is that um, he says something like, as long as um, our problems, like in our contemporary world, resemble Hegel's problems, like the ones he was working through, then you can see the continued relevance of the project. And I think it's a great insight. And there is not a problem more pervasive in the present than the lure and certitude of immediacy. And I, I think it's a certainly it's certainly rampant in my field of media studies, but it is also like it is also I mean just rampant political. Like just look at any let's look at the look at the front page of the news, and you like the like a, um, I'd say it is the political problem. The political problem. Yeah, I yeah. mean it's just like the, it's what um it's what it it, it is. I I think like it's the driving force behind the uh behind the right the global right-wing movement is that there's something in the rhetoric the upset the making of a villain the like the needing to tear like it feels it's oh yeah 
that's it. I yeah. understand yeah. politics now because there is this villain and they've been taking something from me in the shadows and there is a grand conspiracy. I knew it. I, I can feel it. And because there's something I didn't understand and now it's being laid out for me. Uh, by a con artist who I can trust because they have swindled other people. So why would they swindle me? And like, like, again, that's not logically, it doesn't make any sense, but it does. But th- like, that's like their, the immediacy is the, the, the glue. The immediacy is the glue. Uh, right. But also the, don't so you think like, I, I think yeah. what's interesting is that it, it, it links together like the predominance, continued predominance of racism Oh yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. You know the the inability to 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 combat capitalism, and then maybe most significantly, like the the climate denialism, right? Mm-hmm. Like the mm-hmm. because I I don't wait. The, there's just these series of disparate weather phenomena. <laughs> yes, you know? there's not well, climate change. So so yeah. I think you know. I mean, it's interesting. I think the right is about to do this. That you knew this was going to happen, right? Like. They're going to shift from it's not happening. It's not happening to it's too late. Yeah, to yeah. do anything. I mean that that right. shift. I, I I've known that shift was coming for a long time, and I think mm-hmm. I think we're almost on the cusp of it because the denialism is becoming increasingly untenable, just mm-hmm. empirically, right? Yeah. So I think that you're going to see this shift, and it's going to happen. I think it'll happen, and then you'll they'll be like, "Well, we never denied it. It's just it's just there's nothing you can do about it. It's too late." Yeah. yeah, so that we didn't. We so, we were we were denying that we there was anything we could do about it, right? Or, or, or whatever. You know, they, they, or, I mean, or they the often or the solutions their own. Yeah, 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 yeah. So the anyway, so I cause think more pain, right? Or what, what's the, what's the fr- see? That's the other thing. That's the other thing that the right has that the that the left uh, does not. Which like I was thinking about this the other the, the other day that like all of like so many cliches like are just so easy to mobilize for right wing purposes I, it's like true like like oh well the the cure is worse than the disease about climate change look they have that in their, their back pocket you know like like or yeah. or or how about how about um uh how like here's another one is is like like uh you let's see um you could say it's like stand, standing still is fall is falling behind and I didn't, I haven't attached that to any political idea at all, but you could pretty much do that to any single one. Like I hear like um, being in New Hampshire is like, is kind of, is sort of interesting because of the primary uh, season. And there are just these like wild ads where uh, there's this guy who's running for a Republican seat and uh, he's going to um, quash, he's going to squash in- inflation, Todd, you know how he's going to do it? How He's going to curb government spending oh has absolutely okay. nothing to do with it but it's just like yeah. but again that's a thing that like oh spending too much money government government bad things cost too much people suffer like it's just again it's all these like immediate logics and and like like uh all like all the cliches like they're all there like and and they're they're these like simple slogans and i think um all that the all that I've really seen is that the the uh, the left has sneered at the simple slogans that work, but have not offered something that is simple that works in the opposite. And that I yeah, I but think, part of it, don't you think? Part of it is that that I agree. I genuinely, I generally agree with your point. I think it's right, but part of it is like, don't you think it's hard to turn into a slogan? 
uh, spirit wins to its truth only when it finds itself utterly torn asunder. I mean, like, yeah, no, that's like a fair point. The great, fair point. the great leftist ideas, I don't think have a. I mean, Marx maybe like you know, all we have to lose are our chains. Yeah, yeah. I mean that that's that that maybe could have been mobilized a little bit more than it has been. Mm-hmm. Uh, it became a kind of cliche. I don't know. I yeah, yeah, it's a good it's a good point. I mean, and it is it is about the difference between the the enjoyment factor of right and left, right? Like mm-hmm. that's what you're really talking about. I well, think. And, and and also the the project, like the I think the if you can't, well, I guess I put it this way: if you if if it is impossible, which I don't know that it is, but if it's impossible to have a simple slogan to uh, encapsulate the emancipatory idea like i think you know as we've said going back to the beginning of this podcast since we're in this uh sort of holistic mood like you know i at one at one point in the first year of the podcast and i do still believe this that like black lives matter it should have been just like the platform of the democratic party and like yeah. like that you know and and um i think that w- that uh, that episode we did after lack that was in the the it was in twenty it was in twenty sixteen but we might have done the episode 20, in 20, 2016, 2017, yeah. maybe maybe it was when we did the episode or or, yeah. um, or maybe it was the year later I don't I don't quite recall but like that I think that could be mobilized uh, or uh, you know and but there's a moment you have to seize a moment to yeah. to, to mo- mobilize the thing yeah. or else it it becomes uh like that that energy that the, the could have been becomes it could it becomes could have been it becomes extinguished in some right. way but right. if but again if if the if the finding of the slogan is 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 some kind of impediment then the wider project that i think that hegel lays out here really of the more complicated and difficult idea needing to feel immediate that i think that needs to be the, the front and center of left yeah i know politics. i think that's true and i i, I do think like, it makes me think we need a book that's critiquing immediacy right oh yeah yeah oh wait a minute oh wait a minute no i think our friend is writing that our (laughs) friend anna cornblue is writing a book uh critiquing i think it's going to be called immediacy but i don't know i I don't i don't know i think she's it's coming out with verso but i think the Mm. the title is uh something else is, is i don't know i think i think i don't know they might you know how presses are they sometimes don't like your title Mm. and in my case, they never like my title, <laughs> but, but, yeah. Yeah. which is good because then you can always blame them when the t- people say, "I like this book, fine, but your title sucks." You say, "Well, you know, no, not my not my choice, not my <laughs> not my choice." But yeah, I just want to cover a couple more things. Like I think mm-hmm. that one of the things he does here is to link, and this is a thing that we've talked about throughout the our all of our discussions of Hegel. I think to link singularity to universality and he does it mm. rather soon yes. so section 789 and yeah. and he he and and he says this fascinating line where he says the object as a whole is the syllogism yep. now in the logic so he doesn't do this in the phenomenology at all but in the logic the syllogism gets a whole set a whole like minor section in the last part in the doctrine of the concept mm-hmm. so uh but but when you re- when you look at that at first you're like oh what do you what, how can so major pre- premise minor premise conclusion what what is he talking about the object yeah. is the syllogism so mm-hmm. one of the things that hegel is the best at i think is that he takes something that seems like a form of logic like a purely schematic form 
and he sees how actually that's within the way things are. And mm-hmm. I think that's what he's getting at, or at least our experience of how things are, right? Like, so right. his idea is we didn't just make up syllogisms like, oh, we'll just use these to prove things. Like his idea is, <laughs> no, they actually emerge out of concreteness, right? And so mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. the idea the object is the syllogism means that every object brings together universality and singularity to come up with what, I mean, the three parts of syllogism would be universality, particularity, singularity, right? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so for him, the, the, there's a link in every object between what's universal and what's totally singular about the object. And, and his idea is that universality isn't what erases the object's singularity. It's what allows us to identify it and vice versa. Right, yeah. vice versa. That mm-hmm. you discover the singularity of an object, that's really the path to discovering the universal. Right. And so that to me, it's just buried in this one little section because what he's really doing is he's hinting at what's going to happen in the logic. But yeah. I feel like this is such a incredible insight because I think too often today, just like you're talking about this problem with immediacy. Too often, I think, we're bogged down in this critique of universality that doesn't see how singularity, which is what we want to preserve, mm-hmm. absolutely depends upon universality. And the reason we don't see that is because the term I haven't really mentioned is because we are convinced that particularity is the absolute end point of thinking. And yeah. we don't see the, the, the two things that are repressed are universality and singularity. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, full in, endorsement from, from me. And this is, this is why in, so I'm going to, I'm going to give a couple examples to, okay. to, uh, to help, to help and support this. Uh, this is from something I, I have to finish writing myself, but, um, as we talked about on the podcast before my formula for the universal is the particular that changes all particulars. And it like this, I'm just going to like read this. Yeah. Read it. Yeah. 789 from the Miller. Um, uh, thus the object is in part immediate being or in general a thing corresponding to immediate consciousness in part an othering of itself, its relationship or being for an other and being for itself, i.e. determinateness corresponding to perception and in part essence or in the form of a universal corresponding to the understanding. It is as a totality, it being the object, the object is as a totality, a syllogism or the movement of the universal through determination to individuality and as also the reverse movement from individuality through superseded individuality or through determination to the universal. And I think this, for me, I think you can kind of see that, that, that what I said in seven words or fewer is, it's kind of, is his idea. It's the, right. like the, right. what, what is universal is, is the, is a particular element that changes the way that we think about any other particular element related to that first thing. So I'm going to give a couple examples because maybe that okay. even sounds a little complicated. I think what most people think, I'm going to give the, I'm going to give the, the version of, uh, if, if anyone has a pot, if, if someone has a positive association with a, a notion of the universal or universality, it's going to break down kind of like this. So I'm going to give two examples, both from British, uh, writers named David Mitchell. So okay. the first one is the novel celebrated novelist, David Mitchell. And this comes from cloud Atlas at the end of the book. Um, this character who, has gone on 
uh, a literal journey, a sea journey, but also a journey from a uh, being a um, uh, bourgeoisie, uh, um, like idiot, not really thinking about the plight of enslaved people. Uh, and, and, and he's not been on this journey to become an, an anti-racist basically. And he imagines, okay, this isn't actual, but he imagines a dialogue with his racist uncle, which is uh, quite funny. Cause like the, the like quote racist uncle is like such a, I mean, I don't think David Mitchell is thinking about it this way, but like, that's just such a popular, uh, a figure. Yeah. Um, yeah. it's such a popular figure that I, there's this really funny tweet that i imagine uh like that someone said do intolerant people say like oh my open-minded uncle is coming to thanksgiving dinner i don't know i think think it's so funny anyway so this character who's been on this journey to become anti-racist um he imagines this uh this this dialogue with his uncle where he tells him all the things he's going to do to like uh, to 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 affect an anti-racist project, and he knows his uncle will guffaw. I don't have the book in front of me, but he know it will guffaw and tell him that all of your efforts will amount to nothing more than a a drop of water in an ocean. And then his response will be, "Yes, but what is an ocean but a multitude of drops?" Okay, and I think. Wow. I feel very confident. Oh yeah. It's inspiring. I feel tingles. It's great. It's a great ending to the book. Like I think, (laughs) I think a lot of, no, I was saying, wow, in a negative way, but go ahead. (laughs) Well, it's like, but it's, but Todd, what I want to, it's immediate though. Like that feels right. Yeah. That's what, that's why, like, I still think, like, I still think that's great. It's a great ending to the book. There's something about it that like, yes, if we could change the ocean with a multitude of individual actions if everyone just recycled todd properly then it would matter more than what coca-cola makes coca-cola in plastic bottles and Mm. not really true but that's what but that's an idea that's that that's out there that people get really wrapped up in that like it's the individual action that if enough individual actions uh like amount to a kind of systemic change which yes that is not how it works uh, unfortunately, yep. it'd be really nice if, if it was, because then then we know what the plan is in the project. So right. that idea, an ocean as a multitude of drops, I think when people think of universality in a positive sense, that's what they think. It's an amalgamation of particular actions that will add up to something big. And that's, I, I think, a dominant way of imagining uh, collectivity. But it's not really again, it's not really dynamic. It's, it's actually fundamentally inert. Uh, as a as a collective, it's just really really particular and and singular. No one is really working together. You just you do your own thing. If enough people did their own thing that loosely connected, then it'll amount to something bigger. That's not collective action. So uh, this also, but I'm going to give an example from uh, David Mitchell, the comedian. This is from his book, Dishonesty is the Second Best Policy. So I'm going to read something, okay? And this is going to. Uh, He's not, he's certainly not answering the cloud Atlas thing. He's not responding to that, but this logic here is, uh, there's a turn, there's a universal turn. There's in in what we just sort of laid out from Hegel. So Todd, get, get ready, get comfortable. Okay. Uh, one of the cleverest things the banking sector has done since the advent of the internet is to establish the notion of quote identity theft. Robert Webb and I once wrote a sketch about it in which a hapless account holder tries in vain to argue that it was the bank rather than him that had something stolen. Quote, I still seem to have my identity, whereas you seem to have lost several thousands of pounds. A lot of what is called identity theft is, in truth, bank robbery. 
Someone has approached a bank and absconded with money that doesn't belong to them. Instead of a gun, they use a disguise. People have always tried to rob banks, and traditionally, stopping that happening was down to the bank. That was their pitch. Give us your money and we'll keep it safe. We might lend it out while you don't need it, and you might get a bit of the proceeds of that, uh, but when then we'll give it back to you. You can trust us not to give your money away to someone random. It's our job not to do that. With the concept of identity theft, however, banks try to absolve themselves of, their, of that fundamental responsibility. So now if someone steals from them in disguise, they claim that's an issue between the thief and the person the thief is disguised as. If a gang of armed robbers were wearing Tony Blair masks, would the bank now debit all the stolen cash from the former prime minister's account? That's a nice idea for a sympathetic heist movie. So anyway, this idea, right, that like we like this is a like a rampant idea. Identity theft. There's, like that's a commercial. Like every every 10 commercials, that's a commercial. Uh, like in and, and, and all like all the ads, like all, all this like about like per, like personal safety or whatever, like it, like your your job to keep your identity safe. LifeLock, right? Isn't that like a, that's like a thing I've heard right, that ad right, on for the, sure. like, all yeah. all the time. Yeah. But it's this way of thinking about it is this is the the whole idea, just the concept of identity theft is the bank absolving itself of a fundamental responsibility. And also, not even that, your identity hasn't been stolen. You still have your identity. The bank has just been swindled. And it's it's that that turning. That's what I'm trying to to present. It's that that flipping is to see uh, a universal logic, a particular right. that changes all particulars. If you see right. that in identity theft, of this is actually the bank getting away with something, not but it's more immediate that you had something stolen from you. But that's right. It, it, that's right. That's right. You know. But if you could flip that to see, no, it's actually the bank getting away with something. It's then, then that is the, like, that's the turn. That's the Hegelian turn. That's the, the, the dialectical turn proper that I like one needs to make, I think, to start to see how systemic change would even be brought about. It's not the multitude of ocean drops, but it's seeing that when you have your identity stolen, it's the bank that's getting away with something, not the person that stole from you. Right. I mean, that, right, right, exactly. And, and that, that you're, mi- and, and that if you think about, that singular point and link it back to the universal, that's exactly what Hegel's getting at here, right? Like that, that the, the universal both illuminates the singular and the singular illuminates the universal. And that's the point that we get to in absolute knowing because we've given up the idea of a beyond, right? Like that, Mm -hmm. that there's no more that we've reconciled certainty and truth that there's no more this external space that we're gonna where we're gonna leave uh, uh, untouched because we want to make sure that we can uh, put our hope in it, right? Like, mm-hmm. it, so here's here's my joke about the about the absolute <laughs> knowing section, okay. which you do not know is coming. No, I don't know uh, this is coming. You do not know this joke, so uh, you might you I, you will know this joke though. So okay. so. A guy's walking through Central Park, and he sees another guy. Uh, it's at night, and he sees a guy, you know, scrounging around in the leaves looking for something. And he's like, "Well, I, I, I should probably help." And he goes up to him, and he's like, "What, what, what happened? What are you looking for?" And he's like, "I lost my keys, and I just can't find them anywhere." And the guy goes, "Well, where'd you lose them?" And he goes, "Oh, back there, about fifty feet." And, and the guy, and the guy that's coming to us goes, "Well, okay, that doesn't make any sense. Why are you looking here?" And he goes, "Well." The light's so much better here, <laughs> right? Okay, so nice. So, so that's essentially what Hegel is trying to say: is we got to look for our keys 
where the light's bad, right? Mm, like that, nice. that we, we've got to stop looking for our keys where the light is good because then we can still hope to find them some, we can still hold on to the fact that they're, they are somewhere else, right? But if we're looking for them where we lost them, then we, we don't, we don't have this, we can't, we can't hold on to, we can't take security in this idea that mm. they're somewhere else. And I think that's the, to me, that's the real key. And then I, I do want to get to this final, my God, it's oh, just, yeah. to me, it's the most important. I mean, we, we were going to talk about the very end of the chapter, but the, mm. but then in, this comes in section, uh, what is it? Section eight, uh, hold on a second. Uh, Section eight oh seven in the uh, in the German there's no section numbers which is mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't know what Hegel is thinking uh, so so this is this is this is Pinkard's version of it knowing is acquainted not only with itself but also the negative of itself or its limit to know one's limit is to know how to sacrifice oneself mm. I'm sorry I just changed the Pinkard as for the, my own version uh, by the way we both think. I, I believe that the Michael Inwood, which was yeah. published with Oxford in the same year, is probably the best translation of yes. of of and I, I think I just gave Inwood's translation of this line while I yeah. was reading Pinkard. Um yeah, so anyway, uh, which is Inwood is less how do I say this? Like less word how did you put it? It's like he's less word for word literal, yeah. but he kind of captures more the spirit. In, in English. English, what yeah. Hegel would sound like, yeah, yeah. In German, it. yeah, it's like it's like a yeah. The, the, those two, I gave the example of uh, like the, I, am for, I am forgetting their names, unfortunately, but like there, there, um, at least when I was in undergrad, there, there were considered like three great translators of um, Petrarch, and you basically you had a choice. Did you have someone who was uh, like literal, and and, yeah. and 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 it might even translate. I mean, they're both romance, like, like, like Italian and, and English. So like, it doesn't, you don't get some, fra- like sometimes in the Pinkard, you get phrases in English that no one in English would ever say something right. the way that right. the German is written. Um, so you certainly don't get that. It's not like that in, um, in, in Petrarch, but it is more, uh, it's more word for word literal, which some people like, yeah. um, yeah. And, or you get someone who it's more, uh, florid and it's more, it is literally more of a, like a, 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 a translation. There's a great, um, there's a phrase in, um, they don't call it translation in video games. Like when a video game is made, uh, Japanese and then it's, it's translated yeah. into English. They don't call it translation. They call it localization, which I think oh. is, which I think it might be a, like that might be a slightly better phrase here. Maybe um, better. Yeah. Yeah. So like it's, so more what's the lo- third one for Petra? Well, the third one for Petrarch, And again, I wish I remember the people was just, it tries to split the, tries to split the baby oh, okay. of, of, of both okay. of them. So it's not, it's not actually a third option. It's, it's a middle ground. It's not, it's synthetic. It's not Hegelian. It's um, not Hegelian. Uh, contradiction. Right. right. Yeah. But so w- what's great about this line is this, this idea of like that, that spirit absolute knowing is not just, and I think this is, the, I mean, he, he sort of tells everything in these two sentences, right? Like, that absolute knowing is not knowing everything, right. but also knowing the limit, like yes. knowing the barrier, knowing the negativity that one can never get beyond or the contradiction one can never overcome, whatever you want to call it. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's, that's really what absolute knowing is. And then to link that in this incredible way to sacrifice, right? Mm-hmm. Like that, I, I think that's really that, that, that knowing 
one's limit ends up being, and knowing the limit of absolute knowing puts you in a position where you can, because you're no longer striving to get something, then you're able to sacrifice yourself. And I think this self-sacrifice for him, I mean, he doesn't quite theorize it this way, but self-sacrifice is enjoyment, right? Mm, Like that's like what you could say is once you get to absolute knowing, you know your limit, then you can enjoy your limit. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I, no. obviously, he doesn't have that theory, but I think no. you can kind of see how that would maybe fit but in. He links it to when I think this is important, like for Inwood, the better localizer. Um, he 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 calls the the sacrifice is the estrangement in which spirit. Uh, yeah. Dis, you know, like in the Miller, it's ex- externalization. Um, but so it's again linking that um the, the like linking sacrifice to. Uh, the process of spirit becoming spirit. Like it's a crucial thing. So sacrifice in is, needs is estrangement for spirit to become yes. spirit. Yes. It's not, That's right. it's not like, the, the, and this is why I was going to, one of the ways I was thinking about this episode, I told you this like was, um, well, what if we went through the things that were not absolute knowing uh, in a Hegelian way, like to get our definition through the, uh, through the negative. Um, yeah. But like, this isn't like, that's not, um, like that's not uh, Nirvana, for example, right? Or, or that that's not like like uh, uh, I gave the Caddyshack line: "On your deathbed, you'll receive total consciousness." So I got that right. going for me. Right. Like like it's yeah. not th- this thing that's just it's going to happen to you um, after I don't know. Like you've 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 put in a you've put in enough time trying to be serene and sedate or, or something like that. Like, like, I don't know, not that I'm saying that like that's, that, that, that's in, in, that's in the idea of Nirvana, but it's, it's like, it's not, it, it's, it's not going to happen to you necessarily or through you. You have to be kind of an active participant. Yes, and, yes. and the thing that, the thing that you have to be a part of in this action is to, uh, to reckon with your estrangement and to yeah. still be, to still be your, to like you, to still be you in that estrangement. Well, isn't that the whole idea, right? Like, like you are yourself in your, like, in its otherness, the I is at one with itself. That's the line from 799, which I think is such a crucial line, so that you are yourself in your self-estrangement, which Mm -hmm. Marx could never, sorry, like, I think Marx is an incredible thinker. Marx could never get that. Like, Mm -hmm. right, like, that's, that's the source of his misreading of Hegel, I think, that he couldn't get that. For Hegel, it's through your self-estrangement, through this absolute being, this absolute serisenheit, like this absolute mm. being absolutely torn asunder, mm-hmm. that you that's you how you discover yourself. And I, I just think that's incredible. And then I, I just wanted to say a few words about the end, which mm. Rebecca Comey has a, a beautiful essay on called Hegel's last words. And she goes through the Hegel, Hegel never in his lifetime quoted anyone correctly. (laughs) And so (laughs) there's a whole argument about, is he just, was he just, he was always doing it from memory and did he just not remember or was he doing it tendentiously? Mm -hmm, Right. mm -hmm. And, and, and I, I don't really care because I think unconsciously it was tendentious, whether it was whether, consciously yeah. t- tendentious sure. or not. But sure. this, so he's he's quoting a, a poem from Schiller called "Die Freundschaft" or the friendship, right? And and mm-hmm. and and 
the the line the final line goes from the chalice of this realm of from this whole realm I'm going to say the Schiller first from the okay. chalice of this whole realm of souls foams forth for him uh, dash infinitude mm-hmm. okay and then here's the Hegel the Hegel's final line uh, from the chalice of this realm of spirits foams forth for him his or foams forth for him his infinitude, right? Mm-hmm. Or foams forth for it its infinitude. It's not clear what the that it's gendered because it's a it's a it's gendered in German, but it's not clear what the referent is. So uh anyway, so so I think this you know, what what he's shifted is so interesting, right? That infinitude is no longer out there as it is for Schiller, but it's it's Zina und Endlichkeit, like his its infinitude. Right. And I think that's mm-hmm. really and it's of course souls is changed to spirit, mm-hmm. which is significant. That's tendentious. Whether it's very tendentious, right? Yeah. yeah. Uh but this notion that it's our and I think like you could almost say the difference between Schiller and Hegel is in just this like turning of a dash into a possessive pronoun, right? Like it's infinitude rather than this infinitude that's out there in the God of the beyond. Right. Mm, mm, mm. I like that. I like, uh, I will, does this, do you want to tie in? I know, cause I know we didn't get to this, but you had mentioned to me, uh, previously, you want to talk about time and subjectivity. Does this bring in Hegel's thoughts on, uh, how yeah, I think so. Because, in time here? Yeah. Right, right, right. Because I think, isn't it like he goes through, he spends a lot of on time and space, like, and, 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 and what he says here has become almost doxa that, that, that uh, uh, nature is spirit in space and and history is spirit in time, mm-hmm, but he, mm-hmm. he does see that that with absolute knowing, in a certain way, we get beyond time, and I think that's what the reference to infinitude is here, right? Like that that mm. that we, and this is where he's even though it's phenomenology of spirit, this is where he's so different from what we know of as phenomenology, Husserl, Merleau-Ponty, Heidegger, right? right? Like Mm -hmm. for them, we're condemned to our finitude, Mm -hmm. especially for Heidegger. But for Hegel, we're actually condemned to our infinitude. (laughs) Right, right, right. (laughs) And temporality is is in a way a misleading, like he, he says temporality is for, is the experience of spirit and its incompleteness. Mm-hmm. And and you and and I think a contemporary reader would say, oh, oh, that, so that means it's good, because mm-hmm. we think incompleteness good. But right. but I for him he doesn't mean it that way. He means you're not really getting it when you're in, thinking temporally, because his idea. I think this is his idea that as long as you're thinking in terms of the temporality of the subject or of spirit, you're you're thinking that there's a future that's going to be different fundamentally, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. right? That will like overcome negativity, overcome right. contradiction, whatever. And then when it, when spirit reaches absolute knowing, it loses that potential outside futurity, whatever. Right. So, mm. so yeah, I think this is, I think it's infinitude in this final quote from Schiller is the, is the is precisely that moving outside of thinking in terms of temporality. Well, right, and rejecting the idea that that we are only temporal 
because right, the, exactly, exactly. Because the con- exactly. the concept has to see itself in what is most alien to it. That's and right. I, this is this is interesting. Um, I should. This would be a great question for Joan. Is this a place where Joan uh, Joan Kopchak is accidentally uh, Hegelian? Because that great line from "Read My Desire" in uh, "Sex and the Euthanasia of Reason," that chapter that the um, the uh, sex is the incompleteness of uh, of language or uh, and signification, not that signification itself is incomplete, or not, not that sex itself is incomplete. I think I've, I've mis- misremembered and put the words in different places. But anyway, her point is that the it is the incompleteness that completes sex, and isn't that not like Hegel's point here? Is exactly he, his point. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. That's really good. That's really good. Yeah, it's exact. So it's it's the point where she tips over from Kant to Hegel. <laughs> interesting, interesting. I'm yeah, sure she would yeah. not agree with that, but that's not agree. Uh, but with I, that. yeah, but I think, but it's a really nice way. But I think it's a really nice way of under of understanding uh, Hegel in that in that idea that like it, it's yeah. the, the incompleteness is not oh this thing is incomplete. It's like the inc- it's like uh, the incompleteness is what completes it. Yeah, right. It, it, yeah, imagine yeah. imagine like a ring. Like I guess I put it this way. Like if, imagine a ring that is missing a chunk out of it. And, you know, you, you would say to yourself like, oh, there's something missing in that ring. And then the idea is like, no, that missing piece is what completes it. That's what makes it a ring. Right. Yeah. Right. Like that. Right. Yeah. I think that it's exactly. A, it's a, exactly. Yeah. 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 So I want to tell you a little bit. Oh my, my, my lesson for today <laughs> is, is that so Hillary and I saw a film last night called Bodies, Bodies, Bodies. Oh, cool. Okay. Uh, which is just at the theater right now. We said so we went to the theater and. uh She's like, she came out and she's like, <laughs> she quoted Notting Hill. She's like, not a classic film. <laughs> and <laughs> and okay. it wasn't a classic, but it was a, it was one of these murder mysteries where the, um, uh, all the suspects are in a house, right? It's a little mm-hmm. like, and then there were none. Okay. The Agatha Christie, right? Um, and, and, and then, you know, one by one, they're getting knocked off and it's not clear who did it. And, uh, and then there's one character who isn't there. And so your, your suspicion is immediately on that external character, right? Because, right. oh, that must be who it is because almost everybody is Wait, are you going to give away the movie right now? No, I'm not. And so I'm not going to give it away because I think it is definitely <laughs> worth seeing. Okay. And I think... It's not, again, it's not great. And so I, 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 but I really highly recommend it as a as a film about Hegelian absolute knowing because mm, nice. the end, and you really have to, I, if I say anything, it's I, I'm ruining the film and mm. it's, and it's worth going through it because it's exactly because it's one of these Agatha Christie things where the solution, I mean, what's great about Hegel is you can't, he's not like a murder mystery, right? Like he's like a good Hitchcock suspense film. You sure. Can, sure. <laughs> you can know the end and it's, it makes it even better. But, mm. um, but this film, you, 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 it would ruin it. So, but I do think that that's my lesson for today: is, is see bodies, 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 without too high of expectations. And and if you're like me, I hate horror films, but it's not it's it's relatively benign. It's like a, if you can see like Get Out or anything like that, mm. then it's you're you're okay with it. So I'm gonna and I think rec- it's directed gonna... by a woman too. So okay, you have nice. one too. Good. Oh no, my recommendation is to watch that Mitchell and Webb look uh, from the uh, the thing I quoted from David Mitchell. Uh, oh, good. Superior okay. to the other British David Mitchell. Would you say though about your recommendation is well, perhaps this gives it away. Is the problem itself the solution? 
Ah. Yes. Okay. Yes. Yes. It doesn't give it away, and yes, that is true. All right. Yes, that is true. Perfectly Hegelian, then. Okay. Over (laughs) and out, Ryan. Over and out, Todd.